continuing to work through the book of Colossians. So this morning we are in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Maybe I should have read this before I dismiss the kids. All right, first of all, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, go ahead and open it up to that passage in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, verses 18 all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. We only have two more weeks in this book, uh, and then we're going to be done with it. It's been a good, this book, uh, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, although I feel like I say that about every book that we're teaching through. Uh, but this one in particular has some really uh, powerful pictures. Uh, so we're going to do this for uh, through the end of the year, and I'm really excited in January as we start into 2024, we're going to start a new series. It's going to be called Neighborhood Church. Uh, and uh, we're going to be exploring uh, what are we all about as a church. Uh, it's really kind of, for me, has been captured with this, this phrase, neighborhood church. Uh, we're going to explore what it means to be a neighborhood church, what it means for you to be part of a neighborhood church. Uh, this is also part of our community rule of life. We're going to be looking at the practice of place. Uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus in the particular place that he has placed us? Uh, so it's going to be in January. It's going to be actually a two-part, six-week series I'm really excited about it. I wish we could get there already, but Christmas is coming. All right. All I'd say, uh, Colossians chapter 3 uh, this morning. Chances are over the next uh, couple days you have some plans with family and friends. Tis the season uh, to get together. Uh, if your family group text looks anything like mine, you're kind of scrambling to figure out when are we all available. Like, What's the two-hour window where we can all be in the same room together? Uh, it's kind of this time where we sing songs about and we imagine coming together, going home for the holidays, or being with family and friends uh, to celebrate the season. Uh, but it's also this kind of time where we have maybe some complicated feelings about family at the same time. You might be looking forward to seeing family as much as you are afraid of the things that might come up around the dinner table. You might have that uncle who just always likes to bring up the controversial topic, or you have that aunt who cannot stop imagining you that you're just 16 when you're like, hey, I'm 30, I'm an adult, I have things that I do. Right? We tend to fall into these roles in our family. Right? Like You're always that role in your family. This is always how people see you in this particular kind of role. And so when you become an adult and then you go home, uh, or if you're a parent and your adult children come home, it's kind of weird. Sometimes, because it's like, wow, you've changed, or you've grown, or there's some new dynamics to our relationship. Uh, you see, the reality is our families abide by certain sets of rules and expectations, whether we know it or not. Uh, this is what family therapists call family scripts. Uh, it's the messages in your family about what you are allowed to talk about and what you're not allowed to talk about. 
about what role you're supposed to play and what role you're not supposed to play, about what is expected of you. Uh, You're expected to bring the mashed potatoes to family dinner, or you're expected to buy your mother-in-law a certain gift at a certain price point. And if you don't, things are going to be a problem. Family scripts are really, really powerful. They're our first experience of who I am. What is my identity? How do I fit? What do I, how are my relationships shaped by our family scripts? Sometimes these family scripts are explicit. Uh, maybe uh, a parent said some particular things about who you are and how you should think about it. Uh, maybe it's just the Hobby Lobby sign in the kitchen that says, in this house we do hugs. Maybe it's the sign in the yard that says, in this house we believe science is real. Those are all family scripts. Those are all messages about what we as a family are all about. And these messages are deeply formative. Before we can even realize it's happening to us, uh, we are existing in a story, existing in a family that has rules and expectations for us. And so the question is not what rules do we abide by rules, but what rules do we abide by in our home? Uh, One of my favorite books that I read this past year by a guy uh, by the name of Justin Whitmill Early, a book called Habits of the Household. Uh, You still have time to get it on Amazon for Christmas if you want, put it on your list, but here's what he said. Uh, The greatest spiritual work happens in the normal moments of family life. To steward the habits of your family is to steward the hearts of your family. That everyday ordinary moments in your family become these incredibly powerful, formative kinds of things. And so the question is not, do we have rules, but what rules do we have? Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his writings, he said this, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. Now listen, don't, don't, get balk, don't balk at that idea. Here's what he says. The alternative to rule is not freedom, as we like to think, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish person. That whether you can explore the expectations and rules and, and scripts of your family, that actually leads you to health. You can, uh, you can understand this is what I'm living in and this is what our family is all about. If you can make those things explicit, you can evaluate them, you can consider them and say, do I want to continue to live in this? But when you don't do that, you're still under the control of some rules and some, some expectations, but it's often controlled by unhealth, not by health. And so what we find in the passage today, as Paul is writing, he lived in an era where people had a lot of opinions about how family should be. Not unlike our era, right? We don't have opinions about how family should be. You don't have people telling you how you should parent and how you should raise your kids, right? We don't do that. Paul's day had a ton of opinions on how family should be, just like our day. Uh, And in his day, there were all kinds of philosophers saying, this is what a good household looks like. This is what good parenting looks like. This is how fathers should be. This is how mothers should be. This is what children should do. Uh, And so the people who are listening to Paul's writing here, they were very familiar with lists like this. Uh, How you should think about being a wife or a husband, a child or a parent. Uh, But what is different about what Paul does here is he doesn't just say, hey, throw the whole thing out and there is no family. But rather he says, what would it look like if Jesus was the center of a family? If Jesus was the center of a home, if he was the one who was in charge, if his way was actually leading the way in how you parent and how you are in a marriage relationship and how you interact with people in your household. 
N.T. Wright, who's a theologian and uh, historian, he talked about this concept uh, of the script of the day was called paterfamilias. Uh, you don't have to know that, but uh, it's a fun word to say. Drop it at the holiday dinner table. Hey, do we abide by paterfamilias? Here's the idea. The oldest male was in charge of the household. Whatever he said goes. He could dismiss anyone that he wanted. He could invite anybody in that he wanted. Whatever he wanted, his wife had to abide by. If he had mistresses, it was fine because he was the pater familius. And his rule actually reflected the larger uh, rule of the emperor. And so pater familius was the code of the day. But here's what N.T. Wright says about how this happens. He says, Paul takes that code and he Christianizes this idea, not just by adding, quote, in the Lord at certain points, but by balancing carefully the duties and responsibilities of the various family members so that the stronger parties have duties and rights and those who are in a position of submission are treated as responsible human beings with rights and duties. That for those who in the larger culture would be seen as less than, Paul gives them responsibilities. And for those who are seen as the authority in the home and the culture around them, he gives them things that they have to do as well responsibilities that they have to have for the weaker parties or the younger parties in the family. Now, uh, this passage in particular is what I heard someone describe once as a clobber passage, uh, which is when you're in like an argument with somebody, uh, they just like drop this verse as like to clobber you in the argument, right? So like you might have a friend who thinks like the Bible is just misogynistic and anti-women. And so they they just drop this verse, clobber you with it and move on. On the other hand, you might have been in a situation that was very delicate in your marriage or very difficult in your marriage, and someone might have just clobbered you with this verse and say, well, just submit to your husband. They didn't actually take the time to understand and sit with you and help you understand what was going on in your dynamics. And so this passage in particular tends to be one of those that we just like to fling around everywhere without actually understanding what Paul means with this. Uh, So you might already, you you might have read that and be like, my defenses are up. All right, I'm ready. I'm waiting. Just tell me what it means. So I want to just give three observations on this text as a whole that I think will help us digest this a little bit better. Uh, When our modern uh, sensibilities are kind of, "Ah, I don't like this verse, how can we actually digest what Paul is saying here? And then I want to take a little bit of time and just talk about the relational dynamics that Paul talks about. All right, so just three observations on this text as a whole. All right, first, uh, the family unit, what we might call the nuclear family, father, uh, father, mother, two and a half kids, and a dog. All right? The nuclear family is the secondary, not the primary community in God's mind. That's really important to get. The nuclear family is the secondary, not the primary community in God's mind. All right? This verse, these verses come after Paul's instructions to the whole church. He spent several verses talking about, church, this is what your life together should be. This is how we should behave. This is how we should live the way of Jesus together. And then he turns to the family and says, okay, family, here's how you then live that out in the smaller version of your house. That family is meant to find its purpose and its, its, its uh, character and its temperature in the larger context of the Christian community. Oftentimes in our world, we get that flipped. We say, well, church should support family. Our church should talk about family values, but the reality is the community of Jesus comes first, and then our homes then seek to model and mirror what the church, the community of Jesus does. 
Here's why that's really important, right? Everything that Paul has said previously to these verses still counts. So whatever it means for a wife to submit to her husband, whatever it means for a child to obey their parents, it still is under the authority of what Paul said in verse 12 when he said, put on God's, as God's chosen, holy, and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And so whatever Paul is talking about, about marital dynamics, it is under the authority of the thing he said previously, which means that submission or obedience or following after a, a parent or a father has to also count as kindness, humility, compassion, patience, and meekness. Right? So to say, submit to me, without doing it in a way that is patient, kind, humility, is not the way of Jesus. And that's not what this verse means. Right? So that's still in effect in these verses. Oftentimes we just kind of drop into verse 18 and say, this is what this means. But actually everything else is still going on in this passage. Right? That also means right, that, that for those of you who maybe you feel like your family doesn't fit what Paul is talking about here. You don't fit kind of the, the married with two children, right? You're, you're, you're single or you're widowed or you feel really lonely this season. The reality is that God's plan and purpose is that the church would be a family for you, that you would experience brotherhood and sisterhood, fatherhood and mother in the context of the Christian community. So church, that's what we need to be to each other. We need to be family. And when we come together, it is the family of Jesus coming together. And, and so if you feel overwhelmed as a parent, you're not parenting alone. If you feel overwhelmed in your marriage, like you don't have to figure out marriage alone. That's why we have family together. That's God's plan and purpose for family. And so then from that, as an individual family, at my address or your address, then we figure out how do we then live that in our house? How do we then live that in our household? All right, so first, family unit is secondary, not primary. Second, in the Christian home, every member is connected to Jesus. Every member is connected to Jesus. In the Roman system, you were only connected to the emperor through the pater familias, through the oldest, uh, oldest male in the household. He was the direct connection to the emperor. And so if you wanted to get to the emperor, you had to go through him. But if you look at these verses, every member in the household has some connection to Jesus. Wives submit to their husband as is fitting unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents, and this pleases the Lord. Slaves, don't obey your, only your earthly masters, but Jesus himself is your master. See, Jesus is the center of this home. It's not a top-down kind of approach. Jesus is intimately aware of what happens in, when your children are obeying you or when they're disobeying you in, the, in their home because they won't clean up their toys. Jesus knows that. He sees every aspect of this family, and so this is not a top-down approach. Jesus permeates this home. He is over what happens in this household. Third observation. Uh, these instructions are directed to these people directly. The language of this text is not uh, husbands tell your wives to submit to you or masters tell your slaves to obey you or parents tell your children to listen to you. Paul writes this assuming that everyone is in the room. Right? Like, like, the way that they would have experienced this is we would be in a room like this, and they would have gotten a letter from Paul, and everybody would be like, Paul wrote a letter, let's read it. And they'd be reading it, and husbands and wives would be hearing it. Parents and children would be hearing it together. Slaves and masters would be hearing it together in the same room. You see, the early church was radically egalitarian from kind of ancient standards. In the room would be men and women, parents and children, 
masters and slaves from every aspect and every arena of the socioeconomic and ethnic spectrum in the room together, hearing this. And so Paul speaks to each party in the room to say, here's how you follow Jesus in your role in your family. Not that that someone else tells you how to do that, but that this is what it looks like for you. So that's the context in which they would be hearing these instructions. So this isn't a boys club saying, here's how we control our women at home. This is Paul saying, Jesus is the head of the household. And so how do we follow him together? With that as the backdrop, I just want to talk through the three different relational dynamics. Now, uh, we don't have enough time to get into each one of these. Right? We could do a whole series on each one of these. Like, there's a lot of family dynamics that play out in each one of these contexts. So I just want to like, give like, enough of an overview that we can digest this and we can think about this. And then in your dynamics, in your household, uh, you have enough to know, okay, Paul's not crazy. The way of Jesus makes sense. And so how do we live this together? All right, so first dynamic we have is husbands and wives. Look at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So Paul starts with wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, here's the important thing to look at. Every other instruction that Paul gives, he says, children, obey your, husband, uh, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. But he doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. He says, submit to your husbands. Now, that language is, for them, something that they do, something that wives choose to do, to bring themselves alongside their husbands. This is not whatever your husband says goes. This is your husband is leading your home, and so come alongside him and partner with him in what God has given him to do. This does not mean that you are less than, because this same language is used to describe how Jesus submits to the Father. And Jesus is not less than God the Father. He is one with God the Father, and so his submission does not make him less than. It's his part to play in God's mission and purpose to redeem all humanity. And so this idea of submitting to your husbands is something that you as a wife choose to do. You have the power to do to come alongside and under the authority of your husband to support him and to partner with him. And notice that this is not a blank check submission. He says, as is fitting to the Lord. Right? So this is not just your husband gets a blank check, I cash in on whatever I want you to do for me. That's not what it means. It means that the submission that wives have to their husbands follows the example of how Jesus submitted to the Father, of how he even submitted to the church to give himself up for her. Right? That this is the example that we have. And, and so this submission, notice it is not a cultural thing, or a family of origin thing, or a personal preference kind of thing. It is a submission along the example of Jesus. Right? And so there's a lot of like, cultural things that, that we would build into that, that we tend to build into that, which is where we get really kind of icky with this passage. But Paul is saying the submission that wives are to have to their husbands is to follow the example of Jesus as he submitted himself to his father. And so it's not a matter of uh, submit to X, Y, and Z household chores or X, Y, and Z with how you parent the kids or, or whatever. That, Paul doesn't talk about that here. He says you submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
And in response, or not in response, but alongside that, in verse 19, he says, Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now, here's the thing. In Paul's day, there are lots of examples of household codes, household rules that would instruct wives to submit to their husbands. There's not a single shred of evidence of any household code telling husbands to love their wives. It was, it was not part of the plan. It was not part of how they operated, right? We tend to think marriage is for romance. That's not how they thought. Marriage was a matter of economics or security or social status. And so love in a marriage relationship was a bonus. If you happened to fall in love with the person that you were married to, like that was like the Hallmark movie ideal. That was not most people's experience. And as the head of the household, a husband could do whatever he wanted, oftentimes having multiple mistresses or multiple kids all over the place. Like, he was not bound in the same way that his wife was bound to him. But Paul says, love your wives. Love is its own submission. To love your wife is to submit your heart to her, to submit your desire to her, that you are not just all over the place in whatever relationships or pursuits that you want, but your heart submits to her as the source of your desire and your affection. And Paul says to do this, notice, without being harsh, that this is not a submission or a love that is resentful or that is grumpy about it or is doing it because God told me to. This is a genuine desire and a genuine love for your wife. Right? So just the, the dynamics that Paul has laid out in this relationship, right? It, it's, like, it's like a circle right? that just continues to go. On the one hand, like husbands are loving their wives. They're, they're pursuing them. They're making them the priority when, when the culture around them says, hey, do whatever you want. And wives are, are submitting to their husbands. They're coming alongside and supporting their husbands. That's how a Christian household and a Christian marriage is supposed to work. Right? Now, what does that actually look like? I can't really tell you. Right? Like, this is the template. But Paul doesn't say, okay, that means wives, you need to do all the cooking, and husbands, you need to be the breadwinner. That's, that's not what it says. Right? It's, it's going to be a mix of your personalities and your giftings and your, uh, what you're good at and what your partner is good at. Like, for me, what this meant, like I, when it, before I got married, I said yes to lots of things. And so my, my week was always full. I would, some of it was because I was insecure, and some of it was because I was lonely, some of it was because I was a youth pastor. I was doing lots of things. But then when we got married, when Kelly and I got married, um, I realized that part of loving her means that I need to like, bring my plans and my calendar to her. Because like, what I choose to fill my week with affects her. And what I choose to say yes to, like, even if she's not a part of it, like, it, has, it, it affects our household. And so loving her means I then say, hey, these are the things that I'm thinking about, these are the things that I'm doing, like, what do you think? Does this fit? Does this not fit? Now, you might say that looks like submission. Well, it kind of is. Because I'm choosing to love her with my time and with my energy. Right? And then there's sometimes it's like, hey, look, I think we should do this thing. Right? And, I, and I bring it to her and we talk through it. Like, that's, that's how the dynamic is, is supposed to work. I'm not just coming down with an edict of like, here's our calendar for the next month. Right? I, I, that would be harshness. But instead, I love her, and so I recognize our dynamic, and I recognize our personality mix and our gifting mix and what I want to do, what she wants to do, and we come together around it. That's how it works for us. How it works for you and your spouse is going to be a matter of how God's gifted you, 
the things he's put in front of you, the opportunities that he's put in front of you, but the dynamic is love and submission. These are the roles that we play in our household. Lots more that we could talk about that, obviously. But the way of Jesus leads us to a new way of loving in our homes. A a mutuality and a partnership and a concern for the the good of the other person. Not to be off doing my own thing, but to choose to love my spouse, to come alongside my spouse, as Jesus supported and loves us. Second, let's look at parents and kids. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children. Oh, sorry, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, So it says, children, obey your parents in everything. But notice, similar to the submission command, it's not a blank check. This isn't obey your parents if they tell you to go rob a store, or obey your parents if they tell you to go beat your brother up. That's not the point. He says it is along the lines of what pleases the Lord. Like, and I think this is so important for us to get as parents. I, I realize I'm only a seven-week-old parent. So my, my advice only goes so far as how do I get Judah to fall asleep. But uh, I've been, I was reading a lot over the past couple of months just to kind of like get ready for this, right? And, and I think sometimes like the, the default is to say, I need you to obey me because I'm your parent. Like, listen to me. Like, like, what I said goes. But, but Paul is saying for parents, what we need our children to understand is that their obedience to us is a small picture of their larger obedience to Jesus. If it only stops with us, we're only training them to be people pleasers. We're only training them to do what we want to do. We're not actually helping them discover Jesus in the everyday, ordinary stuff of obedience. So part of the task that I think Paul is laying out for us as parents, and particularly fathers, right, is to help our kids understand that they are training for life following Jesus. That our task is to help them begin to understand who Jesus is, so that when they're no longer under our authority, but they are now on their own, to recognize that they are still under the authority of Jesus. And to follow him willfully, with desire, that's Paul's point here, because Jesus, like, like when it says this pleases the Lord, like when your kid picks up the Legos, Jesus is pleased with that, right? If, if you told them to, I guess if, they, if you told them not to, right? If they're obeying you, like Jesus is pleased. Like he sees the everyday small acts of obedience when your children are listening to you. And he is pleased not with you that you got them to obey. He's pleased with your kids, like, like, it's like Jesus, that picture of Jesus when he gathers the children around him. Like, Jesus loves your kids. And he wants your kids to know him. And your task and our task as parents is to shepherd them and to guide them so that when we're no longer under, uh, over their authority, they still understand the heart of Jesus for them. Right? And so this changes the dynamic, the authority that I have as a parent. Is I'm not just like laying down the hammer here, like, because I said so. This is instead helping our children understand and learn obedience so that when they're on their own, they are learning to obey Jesus as well. Now, how do you do that? Verse 21 says, fathers. It could mean fathers, it could mean parents, it could mean both. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. That word provoke has this idea of nagging. Don't nag your kids. 
And that's the idea. Like, don't come down hard on them. Don't, don't come down bitter on them. Right? The idea is that uh, you are shepherding their hearts. You're tending their hearts. You're redirecting their energy in the way that it's supposed to go. You're not just beating them up with your words, or your attitude, or your, or your emotions with them, but rather that you are concerned with the condition of their heart, not just whether they're doing what you told them to do. The language here, the instruction here, is that parents, we are to guard the hearts of our kids so that like the world is going to beat them up the world is going to be discouraging to them but in our household in our home where jesus is in charge right, their hearts are guarded so that they are encouraged in their life with jesus not discouraged in their life with jesus because as we teach our kids to obey and to follow we are giving them a picture of who jesus is whether that's a good picture or a bad picture and so our task is to encourage their hearts. Now, how do you actually do that? Uh, I only have seven weeks of experience, so I'll tell you in a couple years. But I heard someone describe it as the difference between being a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer reacts to the temperature in the room. A thermostat sets the temperature. Right? Like in our homes, as parents, in our marriage, as partners, we can either be reactive or responsive. Right? Reactive is where my kids are doing something over here, and because I have not taken the time to work on my own interior life and my own life with Jesus, I'm just lashing out. I, I'm that list that Paul gave earlier. We said anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. That's reactivity. That's where I'm just rah, all over the place. Whether that's with my partner or with my kids. That's a, thermos, that's a, that's a thermometer. So whatever the temperature is in the room, I am just a victim of, I am just reactive to, but a thermostat sets the temperature. It sets the temperature, right? And that's the task that we have in our households, particularly, I think, fathers, we have this task to set the emotional and spiritual temperature in our home. And we do that through our own life with Jesus and as we share that life with our families, Right, like, like, this is not primarily just the task of your, of your wife or the mom of your kids to make sure that your kids are cared for. Right? Paul's teaching is that fathers in particular, like the, whatever the emotional and spiritual temperature is in our room, in our, in our home, like that's your responsibility. And you do that by being connected to your kids and by working on your own interior life with Jesus so that you can choose to respond when things are stressful, not react. Right? That you can choose to engage when your kids are pushing you away. That you can bear the burden of talking through the difficult topics in your home through conflict with your spouse because you are, re you are responding, not reacting. And so be a thermostat in your home, not a thermometer. And how do you do that? This goes all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. You have to have a life with Jesus. You have to have a life. You cannot give away what you do not have. And so you will not be able to be a responsive father or mother, husband or wife if you are not resting in your hidden life in Jesus. That's why Paul has done all this work to now get here to say this is how we do this. All right, so more we could say on that, but that's, I think, a good place to land on that. Lastly, uh, servants and masters. 
man, this is like, this is a, a passage, right? Here's what I want to do with this part. Um, I want to just talk through why Paul says what he says and how we should think about it. Um, because uh, this is one of those kind of passages, again, a clobber passage, that people will sometimes uh, put out there and say, see, the Bible is pro-slavery. Uh, why doesn't Paul just uh, call for the abolition of all slavery? Like, what is going on in these verses? And why does Paul say what he says? Again, remember, this is all in the context of the whole of the book of Colossians. And here's, here's, so here's just a couple things. Right? First, I think as we read this passage, I think it's an important thing that we make a distinction uh, between uh, what slavery means in our country and what slavery meant in Paul's world. Right? In our history, the history of our country, slavery is race-based. It involved the kidnapping of men, women, and children made in the image of God and forced into servitude here in our country for over 150 years. They were property. They were not people. And that was an, that was an abomination. That's an abomination in Scripture. Right? Exodus chapter 20, uh, 21 says this, anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death. Right? The slave owners in, in, in old America did not like that verse. That's why they erased it from the Bible. All right? But anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death, whether he has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession. The whole of the story of the Old Testament is about God liberating people from slavery. So how do we then make sense of what Paul says here? Right? In Paul's day, uh, that's why I think the, the one version said bondservant. Uh, the slavery that he's talking about was different. It was not a slavery of forced, kind of being cap captured by, because of the color of your skin and be, be made property. This would have been an economic arrangement, most likely, uh, where someone who needed work or needed support or needed security would uh, indenture themselves or bond themselves to a household. And so this, think more like Downton Abbey uh, than anything else. If you think Downton Abbey, there's a household, there are those who are in the family, and then there are those who worked in the family. And yes, there is still inequality. Uh, there's still social inequity and economic inequity. But, but I want you to see, with that backdrop, how Paul actually transforms this whole thing from the inside out. Right, because of what he says here uh, to slaves. So let me give you six ways in which Paul writes in such a way that if you were then, you would be like, what? Why is he saying that? And if you were a master, you would take note. All right, so six things. So first, look at verse 22. Slaves. Stop there. He directly addresses them. They're in the community. They're followers of Jesus. Right? Like the way of Jesus in the first century was a cross-section of every socioeconomic and ethnic background. And they're in the community. And so that alone, Paul's not going through the masters to get to them. He's saying slaves. Right? Those of you who find yourself at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder right now, let me talk to you for a minute. He says that slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So number two, he calls them earthly masters. That's not how they thought about it in the world around them. They thought it, like socioeconomic status is like an ultimate statement of who you are. But he says your masters are earthly. And he's already said, uh, like, the things of Jesus are above, the things of earth are below. And so he downgrades the authority that a master has over them, but also does not totally throw the whole thing out and say, get rid of your masters. Instead, he says, your true master is Jesus. And so your earthly master only finds his purpose and place in the context of what Jesus is doing. All right, so obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The third way that he subverts this whole thing is he says, your work matters. Like the work that they would be doing is the work that no one wanted to do. The chores that no one wanted to do. And the master did not care whether you felt like it that day. But what does Paul say? Serve with sincerity of heart. means that those who find themselves in this state, they have a heart, they have feelings, and Jesus is concerned with those things. So he gives them uh, like personhood that the economics around them would not have given them. To say, serve the Lord with the fullness of your heart. And that they are, their work is honored by the Lord. Work that would have been overlooked by almost everyone else around them. Verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Fourth way he subverts this whole thing is he tells them that they would receive an inheritance. Uh, if you were at that level of the socioeconomic spectrum, you did not get an inheritance. There was nothing to your name. When you died, you had nothing to pass on to your family. It all went to the household that you were serving. But Paul says, in the way of Jesus, your work has been accruing an inheritance. Jesus is going to reward you with a thing that the world would never have given you. And so follow him and serve him, and he will give you an inheritance, just like your master is going to receive an inheritance. Uh, let's continue on. Knowing that from the Lord you receive an inheritance, you are serving the Lord Christ. Fifth way that Paul undermines this whole system is he says you're serving Jesus. Now in that world, the status of the master uh, translated to the status of the servant. And so if you were a servant of the emperor, man, you would walk through town and everyone would, would, would honor you and respect you. They didn't want to mess with you. Why? Because you were a servant of the, you were a servant of the emperor. And so when Paul says, you serve the Lord Christ, he elevates their status. He gives them a dignity and an honor that they did not have in that world. And who is Jesus in this letter? Remember, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is the, the one that all rulers and authorities bow to. And so when he says, you serve the Lord Christ, and watch out. They pay attention to that guy. He matters in God's economy. Last thing, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I love verse 25, and this is how you know Paul is doing something, uh, because he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. And it comes right between teachings to the servants and teachings to the master. In other words, that verse cuts both ways. Right, so if you're a servant in a household, Jesus cares about wrongdoing that you do. If you're a master of a household, Jesus cares about wrongdoing that you do. It goes both ways. That there's an equality that Jesus has towards everyone, regardless of their socioeconomic status. He is not, it says, partial. It mean, doesn't mean he's going to defer to the master over the servant. No, he doesn't care. It's, there's wrongdoing. He's going to judge it one way or another. And so in the grand scheme of what Jesus is doing, it doesn't matter if you're at the top or at the bottom, Jesus is going to judge you all fairly and equally. And so as a master then, he gives a warning. Treat your servants justly and fairly because they are in the exact same position that you are as a servant to your master. And if you have any kind of qualms about the way of Jesus and how it deals with socioeconomic inequality, just read the letter to Philemon. 
Because this letter, the letter to the Colossians, is carried by Onesimus to the church. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ran away from the household of Philemon, who was part of the church in Colossae. So whatever was going on in that household, it was not good enough for him to want to stay. He runs away. He gets caught. He finds Paul in prison. Paul leads him to Jesus. And Paul says, you know what the way Jesus calls you to? Reconciliation. And so he writes a letter to Philemon and this incredible letter about the glories of who Jesus is, and he puts it in the hand of a person who would have been a criminal in that world. He says, take this back to the church. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul says, Philemon, whatever Onesimus owes you, I will pay. Welcome him, not as a slave, but as a brother. That's what the way of Jesus leads us to. It's radical equality, because... After all, we are all servants of the way of Jesus. And that should transform our social relationships with people so that we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as part of the family of Jesus. So what do we do with all that? That's a lot. We could have talked about it. That's like four sermons in one. Uh, but here, here's just a couple of things I want you to think about. Every part of our lives matters, matters to Jesus. Every part of our lives matter in the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus touches every part of our lives. It touches how we work and how we treat our coworkers and our bosses. It touches how we guide and shepherd our kids through moments of obedience and disobedience. The way of Jesus leads us to a particular approach to our family life around the table or in the car on the way to soccer practice or when you and your spouse are really just arguing it out on a Thursday night. And we can either become more aware of the ways in which we have been shaped by the world around us and the rules and the scripts of our family that run counter to the way of Jesus, or we will continue to be enslaved by them. We will continue to just do things by the default of what our world says family should look like or what my family says family should look like. But the way of Jesus invites us into a new way, a new way of being family that's shaped by mutual love and submission and respect and care for the hearts of people in our homes. It invites us to understand that Jesus is at the center and to live as as if he is the Lord over everything, including the everyday, ordinary stuff of family life. Justin Whitmer, who I mentioned earlier, he has this quote in Habits of the Household, which if you haven't figured out, I really like. He says this, One of the most significant things about any household is what is considered to be normal. Moments aggregate, and they become memories and tradition. Our routines become who we are, and they become the story and the culture of our families. This is inviting us into a new way, a new way to do family, a new way to do our marriage, a new way to raise our kids, in which Jesus is the center. And yes, that places demands on us, but those demands are for our good and always lead to our freedom. So let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, as we talk through these things, Man, I know that there are are things, there's stuff between spouses. There's uh, loneliness. There's a lot of maybe tension that we feel about what this text calls us to. God, Spirit, I just pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds. God, if there are things that we need to confess this morning, if there is harshness and bitterness and anger that we need to confess, would you just, would you just, Uh, Point your Holy Spirit finger right into that space. 
And don't let us, leave us alone until we deal with it. God, would you give each parent in this room wisdom to know how to just tend and shepherd the hearts of their kids. That we would be emotional thermostats, not uh, thermometers. God, would you give us the boldness to just live as if you care about every aspect of our lives, even the everyday ordinary stuff. So you would truly be Jesus over everything, including our homes. Give us the strength, the wisdom, and the courage to do that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.